Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Scott Rosen and Isan Sarach-Gill of Visible Alpha. Visible Alpha is a data provider that offers not just consensus estimates, but also the underlying models that show the working as to how the analysts arrived at those estimates. In other news, I hope you can join me at Eagle Alpha's Unbound event in New York on April the 6th, where I will be co-hosting the Hackathon. A breakdown of the last hackathon with its winner can be found in the previous hackathon episode of this podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Scott Rosen and Isan Sarach-Gill of Visible Alpha. Thanks very much for joining, Scott. Oh, thank you very much for having us. And Isan. Hello there. Excellent. Just to uh, everyone gets your voices. Um, so you are both um, from Visible Alpha. Um, and Scott, you are the founder and chief research and innovation officer. And Isan, you are the principal data scientist. Um, it's. I'm looking forward to talking about Visible Alpha. It's a name which I keep hearing in the market at the moment in terms of um, being well and all positive things about um, the the data that you're providing. And and I'm, from my perspective, I'm going to be intrigued as to as to really understand where you see yourselves fitting in to the market. Um, and and if you see yourselves kind of as a um, as a kind of alternative data provider, like a like 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 countless others or, or, or a market data provider or where, where, where you fit in. I, I, that's, that's my question going into it, but (laughs) I will not, I will not ask that. First of all, that will hopefully come out in our, in our conversation. So, um, Scott, why don't you begin just by introducing, could you just introduce, um, how visible alpha came about in the first place? Sure. Well, first of all, it's gratifying to hear that you're hearing about us, um, that we're having starting to have a market impact. Um, so Visible Alpha actually, it, you know, the, how it started uh, and when it started is kind of um, uh, complicated because we have a, a variety of different dates. So we started a company in 2015, uh, but actually we the, the origin of the business goes all the way back to 2007. I was formerly an analyst uh, on the sell side. I'd been based primarily in Asia, and I'd started a few businesses, do, done a few different things. Um, I'd run the first call research business, for instance, and a variety of other things. Um, and I was working at the time for a consortium of banks called the Markets.com. The Markets.com was owned by 10 of the largest investment banks. And they'd set up a research distribution service really to be a counterpoint to the traditional vendors that would be owned by the brokers and would sort of represent, you know, would respect their IP and, and sort of be a, a vehicle for distribution for them. And it started to become reasonably successful. And they brought me in to try and think about what other th- things could be done. I was, my title was entrepreneur in residence and my, so, so they brought me in and we looked, we thought about lots of different ideas. So we I met with the sort of directors of search and others from the different banks and said, okay, so what should we do? And we looked at lots of different ideas, but the one differentiating thing that Marcus.com, I don't know if you remember the Marcus.com, it was, it was basically a, uh, it was a research distribution platform at a time when really there was only 
um, Reuters and Thompson and Bloomberg to some extent, but it's mostly Thompson and Reuters were research distribution platforms. In fact, it was when it was started, it was not even Reuters, it was called Multex, um, which Reuters bought later. But in any case, mm. um, they, were, they were a research provider and it was a low cost provider uh, and didn't really have that much to differentiate itself, except one thing. It had one thing that was different and it had some models on the platform. So as you know, analysts you know, write research reports and they interview management and they do all sorts of different things trying to understand companies. But one of the things they do is kind of take all of their ideas about the company and quantify it in a spreadsheet, right? Many of you, your readers, I'm sure, or listeners, I'm sure, um, have, have used analyst models. They're, um, you know, the income statement, balance sheet, cash flow forecasts and historical data, as well as all the operating drivers, like all the things that drive the business the analyst kind of puts into a spreadsheet so they can sort of play scenario analysis and come up with valuation and so on. It's really the centerpiece of their research effort on the company. Mm-hmm. Now, back in the day when I was an analyst, I never gave that model out to a client. I mean, it was my secret sauce. That's where all my, you know, I might cut and paste from it into a research report, but I never gave them the model itself. Um, but what were you, a lot what of were you, wor- what were you worried you were you were worried that they would reverse engineer it and and uh, and you would be obsolete. Well, partially that, and partially because no one ever saw it, so you don't have to keep it very clean, and it was you know it was yeah. a mess, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and it was a lot of effort to sort of make it pretty to give it to a client. Is there um, a marketing? Any... Is there a marketing aspect as well? If you just come up with the answers and no one knows how it is, then it's got that kind of Wizard of Oz magic aspect as well. Well, back when I was an analyst, there was a huge information arbitrage opportunity that I had as an analyst, right? This is before Reg FD. It was a time when, you know, I would go and talk to corporate management. Now, granted, I was out in Asia, so we might say it's slightly different, but I was out talking to management and they would give you little, little pieces of information. And that's the way you disclose things to the market. Like if it was really big market moving information, obviously you'd have to put out a press release or whatever. But if there was just little things like the, year, the quarter's not going as well as we like for this product or whatever it might be, you would just kind of, dribble it out into the market by telling the analysts and the analysts would tell their clients and that's how it would get out to the market. It was just kind of the accepted way of doing things. And so as an analyst, you're in kind of a privileged position to get all those little nuggets, right? So if you take that, plus it was kind of before the internet really took off. Um, And so I had access to information just being on the sell side and having access to a budget where we could go and buy data and buy people to process data. And so I had this huge informational arbitrage opportunity where I could take just the information that I had, tell us, you know, weave a story around it, put it out in a research report, and that would provide a huge amount of value to a client of getting information that they couldn't otherwise get. Now, flash forward to 2007, this is, you know, still a while ago, but um, Reg FD had happened. Uh, What's Reg FD? So Reg FD was, uh, you know, there was a big um, uh, scandal. Uh, Elliot Spitzer, if you remember, investigated a bunch of investment banks and and said uh, that they were, um, you know, putting out buy recommendations on stocks that they thought were trash. And and uh, there's a whole bunch of scandal. Were they getting, and was, were they getting, were they getting backhanders? Well, there was there was uh, you know preferential treatment, and they were they were there it, was it stank uh, it stank basically. Yeah, I mean, there was a there was a lot of there was a lot of concern. Now you could argue it was, a, we, we, you could argue uh, in different ways, but at the, the end there was a settlement, the the global analyst settlement, a research settlement, and uh, the banks paid 
you know, lots of money and they agreed to a whole bunch of additional controls on the way that they um, handled research and how they made recommendations. And there was a tightening up of regulations around uh, corporate disclosures as well uh, mm. and how much companies could disclose differentially to different analysts and so on. And so the, the environment in which corporate management would kind of give you kind of insights that they wouldn't share with others kind of, kind of, it went away, or at least at least it's not kind of uh, as as blatant. Um, and so, you really, you don't have that kind of selective disclosure anymore. At the same time, the rise of the internet kind of democratized access to basic information. If you remember, I mean, you might not have been uh, kind of in the industry back in the day, but there used to be little vans that would drive around New York uh, from a company called Disclosure, and they would hand deliver you your your you know corporate filings and things. I mean, it, it was it was really difficult to get just basic information and costly. But that all went away, right, with the internet and, and Edgar and so on. And so now you had a situation where the analyst is still providing value, but they really have to justify themselves in a way that they didn't have to in the past. And so the client started saying, well, you know, I am paying you a lot of money to get your research. And I value it, but I really want to be able to put it into context. I want to understand really in depth, what are the, what's driving your view on this company? And I know you've got this spreadsheet somewhere I've heard about. I want that. I want to look at that. And so the markets.com was the first platform. They, they started giving it out, you know, anecdotally. So you would request it, the broker would send it to you. The markets.com was the first time there was a platform that they would actually be available on. And it was only a handful of brokers. It wasn't even comprehensive from those brokers, but it was really you know, kind of game changing for clients that so they could get these these models in any kind of systematic way. So the markets.com had this. So you would clean it up. So the, the analysts would clean it up and put it on the markets.com. And so would it kind of follow a kind of a template or was this no, a, basically no, no, no. a workshop? It's a factory floor where you had all the choppings and the ugliness. Right. And, well, and that's the, the problem, you see. That's yeah. And that's that's where I come in because people started looking at these models and it's a question of be careful what you wish for because you'll yeah. get one model from a broker that has 15 tabs and buried on the third tab is, uh, you know, net income and, uh, and, and, and revenue and all these lines, which is great, but they call it turnover and their cost of goods include stock-based compensation. And then you're looking at another broker and he's calling it, you know, yeah. revenue yeah. and it's, yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. one tab with 15,000 lines. And, and, and so the clients were saying, eh, you know, do something about this, like make it like, you know, line it all up. Um, and so we looked at lots of different diff ideas and we decided, you know, this is one that maybe we want to take on. Um, and so we started working on it. Unfortunately, we got distracted by a whole bunch of other issues. And so we didn't really do it in earnest. And then the company got sold. Uh, the markets.com got sold to Capital IQ S&P um, in 2010. Uh, and the brokers came to me and said, well, we still want to do this. We don't want to do it with a traditional vendor. We want to own this. We really want to make sure it's, a, it's kind of a, an industry utility and not, not just another service from a vendor. Um, and so in 2011, at the beginning of 2011, I started working on this in earnest and started building up the team. Um, and it took us a few years and we got, we were backed by a, a number before the brokers initially. And then, um, and then in 2015 or five brokers, and then 2015, we actually said, okay, we're ready to, to ramp this towards a commercial launch. That's when we actually formed the company Visible Alpha. That's a really good history lesson and it's very um it's a it's a great foundational um foundational kind of uh you know roots of the company stuff so we've got where it comes from 
Um, what does the let's let's jump to 2015, shall we? In terms of you've you've got to launch. What are the inputs and what are the outputs? Well, we got ready. We got ready to begin to get ready for launch. It took us two more years to actually launch. So we, we actually launched. The, we 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 formed the business 2015. Uh, we had five brokers then. In 2017, we actually got ready to launch, and we did another funding round. So we we brought in Goldman Sachs and a bunch of additional brokers. So we got up to our our current 12 uh, investment banks who are backing us. Um, we got you know many many more banks contribute but those are the, those are the ones who who own the business but in 2017 we actually said okay we're ready to launch the thing um and we you know we started with probably not quite enough companies to be really critical mass it took us about a year to get to the point where things really started to take off you've got 12 12 investment banks which um which have contributed money towards your towards your upkeep and so they are motivated um to to feed you their their models um are, is it your ambition to have all the models available? Well, we have well over 100 brokers now on the platform. And the goal is to have everybody. Um, we have, I, I should have the numbers in front of me and I can get it in the post if you'd like. But um, the, 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 the brokers are very motivated to be on the platform because ultimately, in order to service their clients, they want a few things. First, they want to be where their clients are. Um, and the second, I think, is we're really adding value to their content because we're helping to put their views into context, right? Initially, we had a few brokers who said, well, why do I want to be on your platform? Like, I have a relationship with my clients. I send them my data, my models, and they shouldn't, you know, I just want to have that direct relationship with them, and I, I don't want anyone else getting in the way. And, and we can understand that, but the problem is, the client wants to put your information into context. So it's all well and good that you sent them their model and you say that the company's going to, you know, we have very detailed information. We have hundreds of lines per company. So, you know, you send them something and you say, uh, well, their new widget is going to sell a million units next year and, and it's going to be cost, it's going to cost, you know, five, five bucks each. Okay. But are you more bullish in the market? Are you more bearish in the market? Like, what does that mean? Like put that million in context. Like, what does the market believe is going to happen? Does the market think it's going to be 2 million units and you're actually really bearish? Or does the market think this thing is going to be a dud and they're only forecasting half a million units and you're double the market? That context is really where the value is, right? The, the, you know, I, I was thinking about at some point doing a um, marketing campaign saying the cons consensus is a lie. We were, a we were a provider of consensus, but consensus gives the sense that there is some agreement in the market. And the reality is if there was agreement in the market, we wouldn't need a market. The, the market works because of disagreement. Pull um, the difference. Uh, can you lay out the difference between what, you, what consensus estimates are versus what your offering is? Oh, well, we definitely provide the consensus, but we also provide everything around it, right? So the, you, know, you, show, we provide, you show the workings as well. Yeah, and, and both the workings, how do people arrive at their revenue forecasts? But also, you know, what's the difference between the analysts and, and what's the, who, who is optimistic and who is pessimistic? And, putting, and that's why the brokers really, the, the value of the broker's content sort of really comes through. Because it's, if, if you believe as a director of research that your analysts have value, then you want to show that value in contrast to your competitors and to the other analysts covering the companies. And that's what we provide. We provide the context. So we provide the consensus, which is what the average, I mean, obviously you don't want to know that, and the average, the high, the low, right? And then what each of the brokers thinks. Now, all that's done on a very, you know, 
entitled basis, right? So everyone gets the consensus, but you know, we're not going to give the Morgan Stanley data to someone who's not a client of Morgan Stanley. So that's, you know, a, a major, you know, part of the value proposition is ensuring that we're enforcing their sort of intellectual property rights. But the but the context everyone shares. So everyone knows what's the context, what is what is the market's view of this? And then you can put the individual views of analysts into context. And so you end up as a client, um, what do you end up receiving? Do you end up receiving, you're not still receiving big, messy Excel spreadsheets of, of uh, which are all very different. Are they, are they standardized? Well, you get those too. You get, you get them all. So we, we have a variety of, one of the reasons it took us so long to do this. We have a series of different levels of kind of standardization, normalization. So at the bottom most level, you have the actual spreadsheet models from the analysts. Because a lot of people still like to go to those models especially when they're building their own model, if they want to sort of, you know, see what, see how the brokers have built their models. So we have the models themselves. Then we have something we call the as presented view, which is kind of each broker's view of the company, which can change over time. Um, but you can see the revisions and how they've changed their, their model. And the, and the spreadsheet is kind of fixed in time, but we have a view that kind of lets you see that for each individual broker, however they structure their data kind of over time. And then we have what we call the company data or normalized level of data where every company is different, but we have, the full income statement balance sheet, uh, cash flow, and, and the sort of revenue model, all those kind of drivers of the company, um, which is normalized for that company. So we take all the different brokers and we make sure that everything is, you know, like for like and line them all up. And then we say, you know, what's the number, you know, if it's, if it's you know, pick a company, like we, can, we can sort of look at any company you want, but, you know, how many, you know, how many widgets are going to be sold or how many bet, what's the occupancy rate for, you know, this hotel chain or, uh, whatever it might be, um, we line it all up to make sure you can see everyone's views. Now, from a client perspective, you see the you know the sort of statistics about this grouping, so the mean, uh, the high, the low, standard deviation, all that good good stuff. But then you also see whichever brokers you have relationships with. So if I have a relationship with Goldman and Morgan Stanley and so on, I, those are the brokers that. I'll see their individual forecasts as well. Who, what does your, what, do, what does Visible Alpha's clients look like? Who, who is buying this data? You know, the typical startup will say, what's the largest addressable market and the minimum viable product? I mean, it makes perfect sense. You say, what's the least I can do for the most, you know, the biggest market opportunity? We, for good or for ill, did not pursue that strategy. <laughs> we had a different. We had a different way. We, what we said was today. Today, the world. You said, yeah. No, well, no. Actually, no. That's not what we. That's not it. What we said okay. was, who is going to be the most intense user of this content set? Who are going to be the ones who value it most, but will be our harshest critics if we get it wrong? Who do we need to satisfy? to really know we've done it right. And so we decided deliberately to pick kind of the hardest audience, which are the hedge fund analysts, right? So these are people who have a smaller portfolio, right? They, they, they look at a smaller number of stocks. They look at them far more intensely. They're making large calls on a smaller number of bets, right? And so they really dig deep into companies and they spend a lot of time modeling. And so we said, if we can satisfy that group, that audience, then everyone else should be straightforward because everyone else is going to have a lesser kind of uh, quality threshold. Um, and so that was the target market we went off after initially. And I think we've done, re we've been reasonably successful there. That's a big if though, um, in terms of 
you know, these are the, these are kind of the smartest guys in the world who yeah. have nothing better to do <laughs> than just live, breathe, and sleep five companies or whatever. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, so um, satisfying them, uh, you basically and and so the product, but the work. So a, a certain amount of percentage of the work is being done by the sell side analysts. What your job, what you're laying on, what you're trying to do to satisfy these these um, these hedge fund. Uh, uh, analyst is to make it nice, make it make it digestible, make it exactly. make it easy to read. Yeah, yeah. Put into provide a level of standardization to what is otherwise a unstructured data set. I mean, people like people think of spreadsheets. Maybe your audience doesn't, but many people will think of a spreadsheet as kind of structured data, but it's not really. It's just a big blank sheet of paper with a grid on it. Right, it's it's not structured. You can do anything you want in it, any way you want. And so, what we provide is structure to that. Yeah, don't don't those don't that audience that you're talking about sometimes like receiving things in a difficult to read matter matter <laughs> because because that's how they can differentiate themselves from others. Yeah, but that they, that the um, the um, ability to just deal with very um, you know dirty data is is. Uh, you know, not necessarily a, a long-term sustainable business model. True. I, I think. I think they. Yes, it's true that they they like tackling difficult problems because if they're easy, then everyone would do it. Mm. Um, and that's really you know what we do. I mean, what, what we do is not anything that the client with unlimited resources couldn't attempt. But I think we do it in a systematic way, and we have access to you know you know, more brokers than, than most clients have. So we have a lot bigger set of data, but um, we're able to do something at scale, which, you know, brokers of, you know, client, uh, sort of, uh, you know, analysts have done themselves, uh, you know, hedge finance have tried to do themselves for years, you know, taking all this data, trying to assimilate it. And we try to just do that at scale in a way that has never really been done before. Um, that completely makes sense. And yeah, and if you can deliver it efficiently, then they can receive it more efficiently, which frees them up, up their time to go and do other very difficult things. So they can just exactly. you know, exactly. conquer, conquer the next mountain. Um, from, so from your side, your universe that you cover is, is, um, is the entire, the entirety of, of us markets or beyond? Oh no, it's global. We, we cover about 60, I don't know what it is today, 6,400 or so companies around the world. Um, we certainly started in the U.S. because that was a nice tractable market. Um, but we've expanded globally. And so we cover most, most of the market cap of the world. But we're not quite as comprehensive as our brokers. I think we now have, I think we have data. We have models on, I think, we have 13,000 uh, companies on the platform. Um, yeah. But we have sort of, now some of those companies, we only have one, you know, only one analyst covers it. Um, but... Uh, we have uh, sort of this level of consensus data and all the process data on on, uh, on you know six thousand plus. Hmm. What was the biggest challenge um, when you set yourself this target of of uh, of satisfying the most difficult market <laughs> in the world? What was uh, what was the most difficult challenge? You presumably received feedback and said, "Okay, we're going to have to do that." Then, what was the what was the hardest thing to do to your data to to kind of to to please them? We spent a long time on the technology. So effectively, every company has its own taxonomy, and we have this sort of massive um, taxonomy infrastructure for, for sort of rolling these things up and, and so on. Um, the technical aspects took time, but they were, it was a tractable problem. We just, it was a hard problem, but one that was you know, solvable. I think that 
initially, um, you know, there was just a business issue of like chicken and egg. Clients want to see the platform with lots of brokers on it and brokers want to get on the platform when there's lots of clients on it. And so the initial problem really wasn't a technical one. It was, you know, getting everyone on the platform. And thankfully, there were enough enough brokers who saw the value of this to their clients that they were willing to to get on early, even when our client base was relatively small, because they saw the future and they, they, they realized that this was really going to be valuable um, both for them and for their clients. And so we were able ultimately to do that, but it, it, it you know, it took a while. It took us a good, you know, probably two years uh, after launch to really get our momentum going. Uh, and since then, it's just, we've just been growing, um, you know, uh, dramatically, but it getting the, I think that was, you know, it really wasn't the technical side of it. It was that now that's not to belittle the, the, or minimize the technical hurdles, but we, you know, we, we started this, in earnest in 2011. And so, it's, yeah, we took, we took six years to solve the technical problems. I, I was talking to a, um, a VC years ago um, about the business. And I said, you know, we had, we, thankfully we had strategic investors and we didn't have to talk to you guys. I said, but you would never have wanted to invest in us. I mean, to think that you could have put money in and six years later, we're just, just then launching the product and we're not in pharmaceuticals, <laughs> you know? So, uh, yeah, so so we we solve so we we solve those problems over time, and I think we had the luxury of having um, you know investors who were very very patient. Interesting. Um, from a broker's perspective, is this an opportunity? Is being on Visible Alpha is it kind of an opportunity to burnish the myth a little bit and, and make a make a star out of themselves by actually showing their workings and you know kind of like Goodwill Hunting or whatever, actually showing the the mathematical equation which resulted <laughs> in their their excellent estimate, and then you know people are like, whoa, that guy. Where before all it was was a number in your performance, but actually showing how is there a, is there an attraction from the broker's side as well? You know, there's there's always been, you know, this issue around brokers comparing themselves to each other and sort of showing up kind of what they have. And you got league tables that people like to trumpet about how their analysts are more accurate or, or, or more in demand. Um, the reality is that I think clients have high expectations for what they want from an analyst. And it's not always what the analysts think that is in, that the the client wants for them. I think, you know, we talked before about the informational arbitrage opportunity that you know existed in the past. The value proposition I think today for an analyst is is quite different. When when a when an investor hires an analyst effectively to help them follow a stock, there's two things I think they're really looking for. One of them is insight. You know, is you're spending your time thinking deeply about this company. And so hopefully you'll be able to tease out information from the mosaic of different information available in the marketplace that we both share. But hopefully you'll be able to tease additional information out of that because of your expertise and because of the time you spend on it. And the other piece, Mm. I think, is that the analysts have a privileged position in that they're talking to all of the client's competitors. So they know what the investment questions are. They know what the market is asking in a way that the client might not. Uh, they have that kind of perspective. Those are the two, I think, substantive value propositions that the clients are looking for. And so there's a lot of metrics people try and come up with to judge the first part of that. Um, 
but it's hard, you know, it's not always, again, what people think. So, you know, the regulators, you know, we talked about Reg FD, the regulators put a lot of emphasis on buy, sell, hold and price targets and things like that. But I think most institutional investors are not, don't really care that much about any of that data. They look at it as a signal. Like when you change your forecast from a hold to a buy, that like that's a signal that something's happened. And so that's bears, you know, looking at. And your your price target is useful to know, you know, because it actually makes you make a call, right? And so it'd be useful to understand why you think the stock is, you know, should be trading or whatever. And so I think they, they, they find that useful, but not in a way I think that the general public might, think about those things they don't you know they you most clients are not expecting their analysts to be stock pickers because they think that's Mm. their job right they want you to Mm. process the information to get them a better view on the underlying situation of the company and to to the extent that you could augment that with your insight so much the better i i saw a note um within the last eight months or so. Um, and I think it might've been Goldman Sachs and it was, it was a kind of a thematic mm-hmm. note and it was a bit essentially saying um, at the top, it said, uh, this isn't, this, this, does, this doesn't have a buy, sell, hold. It's rather, it's rather different. It's rather unusual, but read this. If you want to know more about the company, if you want to know more about where we think the company's going and just, this is a kind of a backgrounder. And it was seen, uh, it was kind of presented to me when I when I saw it as being kind of a bit of a sea change and perhaps a beginning of, of a future that actually this buy, sell, hold thing, as you say, is not what people want. They want, the, they want kind of the story. They want the background. They want the context. They want to know what's going on. But, you know, as you say, they, they're going to make their own decision. Yeah, I mean, I think everything old is new again. I mean, I think the most valuable research reports with the longest shelf life are initiations and primers, right? That's what people like. And, and if you look to, if you talk to directors of search and say, what are the most valuable content that they produce um, in terms of individual notes, individual research reports, they tend to be the bigger picture stuff, the industry reviews, the um, where they collaborate, particularly where they collaborate between different uh uh, analyst teams to talk about thematic issues that affect um, multiple se- sectors and so on. Those are the things that you know are most resonate with clients. Now, obviously, you can't always be doing the big think pieces, so there's lots of other research as well. But those those kind of higher level thinking, whether it's on a company or an industry or or, a, or a macroeconomic factor. I think those are the things people really are looking for. Like that's the insight piece, right? That's the insight piece they're looking for that really adds, adds value. So it's give me the details. Don't, you know, obviously they're going to have, if there's 20 analysts covering the company and some new event happens, like everyone's going to be able to tell them about the event, right? It's not that you don't need to know, but there's 20 people who are going to tell you. So the, the, any one person telling you that information is not adding a huge amount of value. But if you have some particularly interesting take on it and why you think it's different, that's really interesting. Which is why, ironically, an analyst who's often, you know, you don't necessarily want the analyst who's most accurate. That's useful. But often what you want is the analyst who's most interesting. Like someone who gives you some take on a company that you hadn't thought about that spurs a thought, um, that makes you think outside the box. That's really often what you're looking for 
and analysts. And you obviously you still want to have the day to day. You you want to an analyst who are accurate better than analysts who are inaccurate in general. Um, but it really is the the insights you're seeking and not just you know, regurgitation of, of what everyone else knows. We are human. I, I feel like it's a human thing in a way. It's it's we we want the kind of stuff that you might have received around the campfire as a as a caveman rather than just a spreadsheet of numbers. Oh, well, the thing is, well, that's the thing. The, but the numbers tell a story. I, I we talk. You know, we have a we have two hundred and sixty or so people in our in our in our um, research operations, um, and we're always trying to get every get everyone to think like an analyst. Um, and so they're constantly generating their own content, often it just for internal purposes, just to make sure that we're all thinking that way. But the numbers tell a story. Yeah. There is the, it, the spreadsheet is a quantification of a story, the story of the company that the analyst is, is telling. Um, and the translation of that story is often into a research report, right? But that, the numbers themselves tell a story, and that's really what we're encapsulating. I think we have kept Isan uh, in the wings for too long. And uh, so I think it's uh, Isan, I um, think you are. So one thing which we haven't done so far is talk about kind of a specific use case or or case study or, or, or kind of talk about how the data can be used in action. And I think you recently put out a uh, a report, a note about, um, about, uh, about the social media case what was the what's the um what what was the what was the findings what was the what was the note about sure <clears throat> so um scott mentioned something uh about these you know what are some of the most popular things that they you know they, they put out we actually took some of our cues from there so we wanted to write something originally for more of a quant data science audience uh but wanted to make it feel more like an industry primer uh, or primer i guess whichever way you pronounce it so uh, think of this as, so Scott talked about standardized data. So we wanted to, we, we look at our most standardized data on social media and we look at some of the revenue drivers. So the kind of things that Visible Alpha Data captures here is, uh, you know, you think about the typical social media company like Facebook, Twitter, or some of these, you know, uh, dating uh, comp- companies like Match, Bumble, and so on and so forth. Typically, your revenue is coming from some sort of a user metric and some sort of a monetization metric, right? So if you have followed the, you know, the, the news recently, Meta has been, uh, or Facebook has been, uh, you know, made, made a lot of headlines. So essentially, all the discussion you hear is about, you know, whether the, the users are growing fast enough, whether they're going to be able to keep up, whether they can monetize because of the issues with the Apple's privacy policies and so on and so forth. So... So now how this relates to a, a quant research is in the following way. So there is this, you know, very famous and, you know, academically grounded earnings, uh, re- earnings announcement surprise models out there. You know, they've been out there for like 40, 50 years now. Uh, so basically you're interested in things like, you know, the earnings coming to the earnings announcement, uh, the investors, the analysts, they have some expectations about how this company has been performing. Uh, so not just limited to you know their revenue and earnings, which are obviously important, uh, but a bit more deeper into about you know how is this business doing in general? Some of the what are their you know like key drivers and what do they say about future earnings essentially? So visible alpha data captures this level of detail, which is what makes it interesting. 
for more of that, you know, the quant uh, research type uh, group of people. So we decided to pick, uh, you know, social media as an example. Uh, this is actually part of a much bigger project that we're doing with two, uh, you know, academic faculty from uh, University of Minnesota and University of Maryland. So we're actually looking uh, across, you know, number of, you know, industries and sectors. But uh, for this, we wanted to write sort of like an industry primer on one industry. And I picked social media because it was very popular. Uh, so we did the following. So we looked at, you know, what does visible office data say about the key drivers? So we have already standardized these concepts. So every social media company I look, there is, you know, some, some sort of like a daily active users. There's something like monthly active users, if, if that's how the company reports things. So we have created these KPIs, and you can basically take a typical social media company on Visible Alpha and break down its revenue into a quantity component coming from the user concepts and a, re- and a, and a price component, which comes from like monetization of that user from industry speak. But it's actually a fairly general framework. So we actually try to apply this in this bigger project into like mining companies, retail, and then so on and so forth. So we're hoping to write about them in future. But here, just pick social media. Then here's what we do. That was that was and that was that um wasn't that what the what Facebook they didn't necessarily have fewer users, mm-hmm. but the users weren't using the lucrative um part. So they so it wasn't necessarily I may have got it wrong, but it wasn't necessarily the quantity of users, it was the fact that they weren't doing the um the most lucrative things, which was which 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 the market was upset about. Yeah. So in in KPI terms, essentially the issue was the monetization, like revenue per user is going down or it's a bit like going down or, or maybe put it this way whether it is it whether it is meeting the expectations of the analyst or, or not and in the last couple of uh you know quarters basically uh they've been missing uh not just you know facebook but it's it's an open question for all social media companies like this privacy policies essentially lead to yes you know you, your users might be growing uh but you know they can opt out of the app now so are you going to be able to monetize per user as good as you used to and whether you can beat or, you know, miss the expectations. So in this research, we're, we're tackling with this sort of question. So basically trying to figure out, so there are expectations on monetization and user growth. Uh, and in the announcement, you get some, you, you, you learn what the actual numbers are. So there's a certain, you know, uh, surprise element to it. How does the market respond to that surprise? Okay. Uh, so we build essentially a, I would say, sort of like a machine learning model at the end uh, that looks at, you know, the announcement day returns. And we also looked at, you know, returns a week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever, after the announcement. And we know all the, like, you know, the, the, the interesting surprises that happened in that earnings announcement for that company in the context of these revenue drivers. So it's not, you know, obviously like scott talked about it you know there's hundreds of uh, kpis this company reports so we're not tracking everything but we're actually looking at specifically these key revenue drivers and monetization and user growth and what we found essentially is that you know the historical earnings announcement uh, surprise models they go off of the top line and bottom line numbers so they typically look at things like you know surprise and earnings so, but we find that essentially, and you know, this is not a new finding. Other people, am I? Am I? Yeah. Sorry, Isan, are you saying that you are? You've essentially found the 
the the KPIs which the market mm-hmm. is most interested most interested in? Uh, yeah. So you, we can put it that way. Yes. So we basically find that the biggest market reaction is to user growth expectations. So if the companies meet or miss user growth expectations, the market is a pretty strong and significant reaction on the earnings announcement day. So we estimate this impact actually something to the order of like, you know, 1% meet or miss uh, on user growth gets you something like 3% excess return. And it's a pretty significant return uh, that you observe across, you know, all the historical data and all the social media companies that we have looked at. So one implication of this, like let's say, sorry, put put aside the quant side of it, this actually says something about like also to the more fundamental, you know, uh, portfolio managers and analysts and such who are inter- interested in industry. So we're basically saying that, look, you know, there's a lot of interesting alternative data sets that you can look. Uh, the companies have, you know, fairly complicated business models. Like, you know, there's the spreadsheets with lots of KPIs and everything. And let's say you have, you know, you, you try to identify, like, what are the most important things that the market responds to coming into this earnings announcement? So we actually have a pretty good answer based on this research. So you should be tracking the user growth numbers. And we find that consensus actually does a pretty good job forecasting these numbers ahead of earnings. The The forecast there is actually fairly small. Uh, and we find that, look, meeting or missing that expectation has a big impact on the earnings announcement day. And if you've been following the, like, the latest, uh, you know, Meta, Snap, uh, Twitter, uh, you know, earnings responses and everything, it, it is actually kind of like, collaborated by our, that, that recent experiences. It's pretty hard nowadays, like, you know, the market is very volatile. So, you know, the model doesn't predict that outsized returns, but it does say that, look, this is the, this is the most important thing that the market seems to be responding to. Is this, is this something which um, you have basically shown how it's done and so anyone out there using your data could do the same thing for other sectors? Or do you intend to publish this for every sector so that people can know what to look for? How does Visible Alpha's data play? How, how is it used on a, how would you want it to be used by a, by a kind of buy side analyst or, a, or, a, or an investor? The, the answer is yes to both, uh, but in, in sort of like a work in progress order, I guess. So we do, we, we do publish the white paper and alongside it, you know, we, put, we, we give you the data for the clients who have access to the data and everything. But one of the things that we're going to do that I don't see a lot of vendors do and, you know, sort of want to be a lead in this this area, that we're actually going to publish our code base fairly soon. And in all future projects, you know, our, our plan is to essentially give the code base of like, you know, this is how we constructed the data. Here's the code behind it for our clients essentially to be able to replicate everything that we're doing. Uh, so that way... You know, basically, the our clients who are interested in, you know, wanted to do the same kind of analysis for retail companies, which is another very popular area. Uh, so they can actually adapt the analysis. They already have the code base, how to build the data and everything. All that we need to really need to do is let's change the companies and let's change the KPIs that you look at. Then essentially, you can apply the same framework to those areas. So we are doing the research on a lot of these industries and over time we hope to publish more of this kind of primers. But in the meanwhile, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to give you the code base so that everything we do is replicable. So you want to apply this to mining companies, uh, you know, we give you the tools to do it. I think the one other thing just to bear in mind, what Isan is describing is, you know, real heavy duty data science and quant stuff. The, the issues at hand though are, I think generally applicable, 
right? We have the data on these different companies at a very granular level. And we standardize that data so they're cross-comparable. And so today, if you want to look at our existing clients without all this research, who go to our platform and want to look at social media companies, we'll be able to see MAU forecasts, DAU forecasts, uh, you know, subscriber forecasts, all that kind of good stuff. The thing that's a little complicated is when you want to do it in a systematic way across large numbers of companies. So today, you kind of have to know what are the drivers for this company, for this industry, right? And so how do you compare a Match.com with a Facebook, right? One of them is one of it is, uh, is an advertising-supported model with uh, MAUs and revenue per, per MAU. And the other is subscribers and revenue per subscriber. So they're kind of slightly different concepts. It's not that big a deal if you're putting into a spreadsheet and doing it yourself for a small portfolio. If you're trying to do it across a large swath of companies, it starts getting very complicated. So one of the things we're working on is kind of a classification system. So we can tell you for this particular industry, if you're looking for a unit price or unit value, here's a metric. Here are a series of metrics that, are, that, that qualify. And maybe here's the one you probably should pick for this company in this industry. That's something that we're working on. Right now, you kind of have to do it yourself. Um, and for people who know the companies, it's relatively straightforward. But if you wanted to do it across you know, a thousand stocks, it gets much more complicated. So we're trying to provide a more systematic way of categorizing all these line items so that you can, you can address them uh, more algorithmically. Mm. Scott, I was gonna, I was gonna come back to you and ask you where do you see the where kind of in answer to, to my kind of uh, early question of of where do you see yourselves fitting into the market? Are you a market data provider? Are you kind of a a utility <laughs> in a way because you're providing the kind of underpinning for the market, or are you an alternative data provider and that and that you're kind of you know you've got data to sell and it's it's sexy exciting data and you should be paid for it type thing? Where do, how do you how do you see yourself fitting in amongst all the other players out there? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I really do think that we're kind of a odd duck mm. because we're, we're, we're a little bit of everything. We're, we're a kind of a data vendor. We're kind of a workflow provider. Um, we're kind of alternative data, but not, not exactly. Um, and I think the, the reason for that is one of the reasons I think we're, we're different. Most of the alternative data out there, I would consider kind of now casting, right? It's really about understanding what's actually happening right now in the world at, at a more finely granular level than you could otherwise. And then to use that information to make inferences about how the company's going to report and maybe to some extent what the future holds in the longer term. Um, and that's very valuable, right? But that's most of what the alternative data space is about, whether it's credit card data or um, you know, pick your poison. We're a little different, right? We are a combination of the market's expectation around those things. So what, are the, what does the market believe with the analysts, the sell-side analysts being a proxy for the market? What, the, what do they believe about what's happening today, which you know, is a assimilated view of all the information that's out there, uh, which could be right or could be wrong, but it's, that's the view, as well as projections of the future and what the future holds. Uh, and to some extent, also a view about the past, because you have, um, you know, an operating view of companies, which may be slightly different from what people would see in a typical database of kind of gap financials. So we're we're kind of a a proxy for the market belief, 
which is very useful to judge your own insights and your own ideas against that yardstick, right? Um, as well as kind of a um, projection of the future. It's kind of a, you know, if you, if you want to kind of just put a placeholder on what, what, what you might believe about companies in the future. And so there's really two ways that people use our data. One is as a proxy for what the market believes. Um, and another is kind of a, a placeholder for kind of what the future holds. And, 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 and it sounds like a subtle difference, but it means. So the first, the first, the first part is the market data part. And the second part is the sexy futuristic data part. <laughs> well, maybe a little bit, but I mean, there's a whole other side of this, which is, I mean, I've been talking about the data piece of it and maybe I'm going off tangent, but there's also the whole kind of modeling, right? We are also a enabler of a workflow, which is modeling, which is something that clients do you know, a lot of. And so we're providing them um, kind of a, a, a lot of assistance in the, in the process of, 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 of modeling. So we provide some, you know, kind of, to some extent, a workflow solution that we're working on to, to extend. So what are we, I, you know, it either mean it either means you're going to choose one or you're going to eat the world. I think it. Well, eating the world's <laughs> tough, but I got to say, you know, if you look at the way people actually do fundamental analysis on an institutional basis, it hasn't really changed that much. You know, since I don't know the invention of the spreadsheet. Right, it used to be done in paper, and then it moved to spreadsheets, and and most people do their valuation work in spreadsheets still, mm. um, and. You know, leaving aside kind of the, the sort of systematic market, right, the, the traditional sort of um, fundamental analysis, it really hasn't changed that much. And I really do think that the move from paper to spreadsheet kind of revolutionized like finance and the world, right? The, our piece of it is just for, for one very small part of it, but it transformed fundamental analysis. I think that we are in the beginnings of another transformation of the way people do fundamental analysis in a, in a much more flexible way with much more context, a much more powerful mm. way of doing analysis that I think we are just at the, just scratching the surface of, of, of helping that transformation. Mm. And so, you know, what does that leave us? I mean, I think, I think visible alpha, I hope is a, is a agent of transformation um, and helping, you know, we see our vision as helping, but it's really help helping the world better predict tomorrow to make better decisions today. And I think that's, you know, in all of its facets. So, you know, is that, does that make us a vendor? Does that make us a workflow provider? Does that make us a data aggregator? Um, I mean, a little bit of all of them. I mean, I think we are a little bit of a different, different kind of animal, which maybe, maybe that's hubris. I don't know. Um, But, you know, I think the feedback we have so far from clients has been, you know, very strong and, so we, I, I avoid the characterization because I think it's, you know, it can be quite limiting. Yeah, no, and I think, and I think I was, I was being facetious earlier, and actually being, <laughs> being kind of soft and and in and kind of in lots of places at once in a in a young and growing market is a very exciting place to be, I'd say, and it means. It means that potentially you you can be all sorts of things, you know. It's it's and 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 you can yeah. There's a lot of opportunities that you're you're serving at once. Um, two quick things, two more questions. Um, one which I should have I I should have asked earlier, which is, would you say that you lean more towards discretionary than um, quantitative in terms of who you can serve? Um, well, I think can is maybe the wrong word. I mean, we, I, I think we have traditionally primarily served discretionary 
um, traditional kind of investment simply because our data set is just so complex that it's very hard to um, to just hand over to someone. I mean, every company has its own taxonomy effectively. And we've created standardized levels of data on top of that. And we're getting more and more sophisticated with our ability to allow people to do you know, wide-ranging cross-sectional analysis. But we really started with individual company analysis, right? Because that's the primary use case um, for the traditional investor. Um, and so that's where we've started. And so the bulk of our business is selling seats to individual, you know, to, well, you know, to lots of people within firms, but to individual uh, analysts and portfolio managers. We are, our, our data business has been growing rapidly. And that's the one that's servicing sort of the more systematic market, whether it be, you know, pure quant or data science, or even to some extent application development. But um, that, that side of our business is growing very rapidly. So, you know, today the snapshot would say primarily it's the sort of, uh, you know, traditional investment, but, um, you know, a growing part of our business is that, that systematic investment. And that sets me up for for the future you're growing very rapidly you've 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 spent a long time getting the getting the offering right and um and it's paying off now because it's because you're you're expanding in in all sorts of directions where do you um where's the where's the what's 22 what's 2022 looking like in terms of and and potentially this could be in terms of markets because you started out obviously saying we'll serve the um the the that most sophisticated most difficult audience where is the audience spreading to what's what's ahead what if we had this conversation in you know a year or two's time then and obviously not giving giving too much away but where's your focus and what are you what are you seeing so it really is that that going to the next step i mean you know i would say you know a few years ago i probably shouldn't use this analogy but I don't know if you ever watch um, South Park. Yeah. Um, but there was a, yeah. Um, this is not our strategy anymore, I should say. But sort of the, you know, the underpants gnomes had this, you know, step one, collect underpants. Step two, question mark. Step three, profit. Um, and so when we first started the business, we said, look, we're going to tackle the, these hedge fund analysts who are the really heavy users and we're going to get them. And then once we have them, then we'll get everybody else. And, you know, we kind of, you know, kind of wavy hand thing. Um, what we've really been focused on in the last couple of years is how do you make that transition from servicing a client who really deeply understands the company and therefore knows exactly how to use your data um, to an audience who are still very sophisticated investors, but they don't have that same love, level of laser focus on the companies, they have a much larger portfolio they need to watch. How do you service that audience? And how do you help them get the same level of value from this content without necessarily having the same focus and background in order to interpret it? And so that's really what we're focused on. So the kind of stuff we were talking about here, about categorizing the data to allow you to understand what the primary drivers of a company are, are helpful certainly to a systematic audience. But you can think about the same kinds of things being helpful to uh, to a traditional investor who's looking at a new company, to be able to bring out here are the here's where the investment controversy is on this company, here's where the analysts have a significant difference on a meaningful line, um, helping them to understand what the drivers are for different companies, how companies differ 
within the industry? What are the, what are the primary things that you should be looking at and what's changed, what's important? And so really our focus now is to some extent democratizing that data uh, to a wider, still institutional audience mm. um, so that it's not just a benefit to someone who already understands a company, but how do we help people get to understand a company? Through using the it's data. like you've got the most beautiful opera that you've created and now you need to think about how you're going to get it out on kind of 7 p.m. on TV <laughs> on Saturday evening type thing for everyone <laughs> to enjoy it. Um, well, I mean, you know, we talked before about the model telling a story. And I think we are creatures who strive for stories. And our, tradi- our existing audience, our historical audience, so sort of where we started, they're perfectly happy to take the raw data and figure out the story for themselves. And I think what we're now working on is helping helping bring that story out of the data um, and bring it to the surface. And that's really where we're taking the business. And that whether that's a story for a systematic investor who's trying to look across 5,000 companies, or whether it's an invest, you know, a, a long-only investor who you know, is, is increasing their weighting in, you know, a particular industry and is, is looking to understand, you know, what companies they should be underweighting or overweighting and what their story is and, and, and how they're differentiated. You know, it's, it's, it's making this data because at the end of the day, everyone cares about the same basic information, right? You might not know that that's what you need, but it turns out if you're, if you're going to invest in Facebook, ultimately you need to know what's happening with monthly average users, right? At the end of the day, you're going to need that data, but you don't necessarily know for every company that that's what you need or how important it is mm. um, and what's happening with it and what, how it's changing, what the historical context is and what the spread of analyst forecasts are and all those kinds of, and how they've been surprised in the past. How do you get all that information across in a way which is consumable um, and useful to you in your actual workflow? Mm. And that's really where we're focused on. Fantastic. I think I think we've done we've done the subject justice. So um, so I think it's been absolutely fascinating. I've really enjoyed um, exploring it, and I've I've learned a lot. So um, so thank you very much, Scott and Isan, for for coming and talking about Visible Alpha, and and best of luck in in making making what's looking like being a very exciting couple of years um, come to fruition. Well, thank, thank you. you very much. <laughs>